This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Nick McClellan. Nick joined me for the second instalment of Uncommon Sense's Federal Election Policy Series. Nick is Pacific Affairs Correspondent for Inside Story, and he joined me to talk about Australia's foreign policy, including its relationships with Pacific Island nations. Nick also explores the positions and recent policies of the major parties in relation to the Pacific. This includes exercises of soft power in the region, as well as foreign aid, climate initiatives and more. Without further ado, I'm going to welcome onto the program Nick McClellan, who is Pacific Affairs Correspondent for Inside Story. He also works as a correspondent for Islands Business Magazine in Fiji. Nick has joined this show as a regular to talk about Pacific politics, and he's joining me now as the person who is going to carry part two of our election policy series. And this part is all about foreign affairs and foreign policy which normally doesn't take such a prominent position in a federal election campaign, but it really has. And I think the lead up to the campaign also seemed to indicate this would be the case with a a very strong focus on China from the coalition, seeking to wedge Labor on national security. And we've only seemingly gone downhill from there. So I welcome Nick, who is going to be talking about Australia's relationship with the Pacific, with China, and also the policies of the major parties. And uh, I'll be adding in there some information about some of the minor parties as well. So thank you so much, Nick, for joining us today. Good morning, Amy. Pleased to be with you. Nick, we were talking off air about the fact that you now are able to go back to Fiji. And, you know, you used to travel very often uh, before the pandemic when we were talking and you were telling us about your trips to the Pacific Islands Forum and many really crucial diplomatic events. So I guess it's a, a very exciting moment for journalists in general to be able to now actually travel on the ground in the Pacific and visit Pacific Island nations uh, to get a better sense of what's happening there. Things are very much opening up um, after the the worst of the COVID pandemic, although it's worth stressing that it's still a major economic, political, health problem in many Pacific Island countries. You know, the Pacific Islands Forum, the main intergovernmental organisation that links Australia, New Zealand and island countries, will be meeting um, in early June face-to-face for the first time in a couple of years. The last meeting was in 2019 in uh, Tuvalu, uh, where leaders came together Um, And indeed, that was a time where there was major uh, criticism of the Australian government under Prime Minister Morrison because of its stand on climate change and other issues. So, you know, the last couple of years have been tough for people in the Pacific economically and health uh, in many countries, although some island countries have avoided the worst of it by simply closing their borders. Um, And they've done a West Australia (laughs) and uh, protected the community on that basis. Yeah, it was a very effective strategy for Western Australia. So I certainly think that there are a number of people who've been saved by those types of strategies. Nick, I know that at the, for example, the Glasgow Climate Summit, you know, every summit that exists, the the UN summits, it seems that the Pacific Island nations are almost the most vocal because climate change is 
affecting them greatly right now. And Australia itself has been experiencing directly the catastrophic effects of climate change. But I think it's easy to distance oneself from the Pacific when we're not seeing the real effects of climate change. They are, and it seems that Australia in many ways has been signalling its apathy towards that climate cause in general, but also the Pacific Islands uh, situation in regards to climate change. And that's been something that Penny Wong, who is the shadow foreign affairs minister, has brought up as being one of the key kind of points of tension between the uh, coalition and Pacific Island neighbours. I wonder how significant is that? Is it being overplayed by Penny Wong or, or is it actually much greater than we realise? No, it's a significant issue. Um, you know, going back to the days of uh, Prime Minister John Howard, Australia has really dragged its feet and delayed action on addressing um, emissions um, from our fossil fuel industries, oil, gas, coal, um, and uh, was very slow in coming to the table in terms of providing finance uh, to developing countries in our region to address the adverse effects of climate change. And that's manifested in all sorts of ways through sea level rise, through extreme weather events, particularly cyclones, uh, what's called loss and damage, the damage that's already occurring from climate-related events um, rather than events in the future, in, in, in later in the century. Um, you know, so we saw John Howard for, for a decade refuse to ratify the Kyoto Protocols, showing my age, going back to the, the early days uh, of um, the 1990s of the climate discussions. And it was only when Kevin Rudd came to office in 2007 that after a decade of delay, the Labor Party ratified um, um, the Kyoto Protocols. We've seen a similar period of, um, of delay under the coalition, starting with uh, Tony Abbott's government in 2013, which saw a major setback in relations with the region in, on a number of fronts. Um, the Abbott government really did enormous damage to the overseas aid program. In one year, they cut a billion dollars, so roughly 20% of the aid budget was chopped in one year. And that was a significant blow to uh, countries, developing countries around the world. And Abbott also did significant damage to many of the institutions that allowed Australia to engage with its island neighbours, to uh, the Bureau of Meteorology for cyclone research, to um, uh, CSIRO, which was doing important environmental research in partnership with Pacific countries, uh, Radio Australia, which saw a massive uh, devastation of Radio Australia and the loss of about 80 staff in uh, uh, about 2014 um, when the Abbott government cancelled the contract for the Australian network TV station. So a lot of the institutions uh, that are involved in engagement day by day with our Pacific neighbours were very badly damaged during the Abbott years and that forced subsequent governments to try and step up um, the relationship uh, uh, to, to repair some of the damage that was done in the early years of the coalition. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought up the Australian Network and Radio Australia. A number of our listeners perhaps aren't familiar with it. As you say, it was cut and finished in 2014 by the Abbott government and Julie Bishop was actually presiding over that as the Foreign Affairs Minister and it was very controversial at the time, though I think now that we look on it, it should have been even more controversial than it was, given just how significant the Australian network 
was to the region. It is and was uh, run by the ABC. The Labor Party had actually engaged the ABC in a 10-year contract to provide the service of the Australian Network, which is an international television service. Uh, It had a potential audience of over 144 million people. And it also said that the number of viewers in the region had grown in the last year Uh, in 2014. So it was quite surprising to see that the coalition in their major budget cuts decided that they would remove something which many in the foreign policy area saw as a, a crucial tool in Australia's arsenal in terms of soft power. I wonder, could you explain to those listening what soft power means, especially in practice and in particular in relation to the Australian network and Radio Australia? As you say, the the contract, the 10-year contract worth about $250 million for the Australian network TV was um, ended uh, 18 months into the program. But the real damage was not just to the TV station but also to radio The ABC had merged a number of units together, including uh, the newsroom for Radio Australia, uh, for the Australia TV network, and for its digital uh, broadcasting into the Asia and Pacific region. And so when the, you know, within a few months, the budget uh, simply dried up, um, having been mapped out over a 10 year period, um, there were massive staff cuts. And beyond the pure numbers, there was a loss of incredible expertise and knowledge about the Pacific Islands. So veteran journalists like Sean Dorney, um, Campbell Cooney, uh, uh, Heather Jarvis, um, uh, Jemima Garrett, many people who'd been crucial in building up a knowledge of the Pacific and not only broadcasting out to the Pacific region, but also bringing the knowledge about the contemporary Pacific into the Australian debates through their work within the ABC, their broadcasting domestically, um, that expertise can't be replaced. So slowly the ABC has been trying to rebuild, um, uh, you know, the the staff, but there's a lot of young journalists there and that that long-term networking built up over many years, you know, uh, hundreds of years of experience was lost at that time. And the ABC continued to be forced to make budget cuts internally um, and that led to some bad strategic decisions. And one of them was the closure of the shortwave broadcasting capacity, um, as well as broadcasting digitally uh, through satellite and, and so on. Um, shortwave is particularly important for the Pacific Islands, more so than Asia, you know, where the, the shift to digital uh, broadcasting is more significant. But in many rural and regional areas of countries like the Solomon Islands, Vanuatu and others, um, shortwave radio is really crucial And Radio Australia provided a valuable service in a number of ways. One, it provided news about regional and world affairs that national broadcasters often couldn't cover. You know, a tiny country like Tuvalu or Vanuatu, um, their broadcasting um, corporations, although they've got excellent journalists there, just don't have the resources to cover the region, let alone global affairs. So Radio New Zealand, Radio Australia play a crucial role. But more importantly for things like disasters, when there's a cyclone, I was out on the island of Futuna um, a few years ago, a small isolated um, island, volcanic island, uh, six villages clustered around a volcano in the southern islands of Vanuatu. And people there told me that when the cyclones came, they listened to Radio Australia for cyclone warnings. So it was a widely appreciated service. And when in 2017, 
uh, the ABC shut down those shortwave broadcasts, um, it was a terrible blow to an audience across Melanesia, particularly PNG, Solomon's Vanuatu. And the punchline of it, of course, was that China picked up the bandwidth. Um, China is now using the shortwave bands that Australia dumped in 2017. So it was very much a known goal, all of which, as you say, was under the watch of uh, um, Tony Abbott and then uh, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. Yes, absolutely. And uh, the Shanghai Media Group uh, are very prominent now in the region. And it's, as you say, an own goal. It's something that was easily foreseeable and yet wasn't prevented by, you know, people being very, very measly in terms of the funding arrangements and and stopping something that was very, very successful. And you've outlined there some of the content that Pacific Island nations receive through those programs and also how it's used. But what are the effects of receiving that programs? Because surely uh, when the Australian Network and Radio Australia were running, that must have actually brought Australian perspectives and Australian politics and different types of things, bringing Australia to the minds of Pacific Island nations in a very pervasive way. Uh, So I wonder what was the diplomatic or foreign policy or foreign affairs effects of a, a tool like that? Well, it's a double-edged sword in many ways. And um, I, as you mentioned at the beginning, I work for a magazine in Fiji and work alongside some really excellent Pacific journalists. And there's a concern that, in fact, larger players, be it United States, China, Australia, even New Zealand to a certain extent, crowd out the possibilities for independent Pacific media and Pacific voices in all the global challenges that we're talking about. How do you deal with China? How do you deal with climate change and global warming? How do you deal with the pandemic of violence against women across the region? Pacific Islanders want to have a say in all of these global challenges. And there's a lot of concern that simply pumping money into Australian broadcasting without doing better cooperation with their their partners. And there's been some really interesting work done by former RA journalists like Sue Ahern and uh, Jemima Garrett to talk about an Australian media initiative um, to to revitalise international broadcasting um, and the ALP in their recent announcement uh, of their Pacific plan seems to be picking up on this idea. But one of the things that Jemima and Sue Hearn and others stress is the need for co-productions where Australian journalists can work alongside and with Pacific journalists to produce content that's relevant to the audience. So Radio Australia, Australia Network TV was very popular for things like the rugby, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, sports programs. Um, I have a very good friend who loves the Wiggles and Bluey um, in Fiji. Um, Mm. So there were certainly programs there. But there are other programs that weren't really relevant to, you know, rural populations particularly. And I think there's enormous potential as this um, soft power capacity is rebuilt to think about co-productions and drawing on the expertise of Pacific journalists who can I say know their societies, their cultures, their histories much better than your average Australian journal? Yeah. And as part of the government's Pacific pivot, instead of having the ABC provide content through the Australian Network and Radio Australia, it subsequently decided that it would announce a $17 million package to broadcast commercial television throughout the region. And that was announced in 2018. It 
is also part of Australia's soft power strategy. But as the Greens, for example, have pointed out, that means that it was bringing reality TV shows to the Pacific like Married at First Sight and The Bachelor. So I wonder, with that change in strategy, not just removing the um, ABC's role, but then inserting a commercial role, what was the response to that change in the Pacific in general? Was was that a welcome change or is this something that wasn't particularly of interest to people in the Pacific? Well, there's been a lot of criticism of the commercialisation of, of the aid program. And I think that what you've just described is you know, handing over money to people like Kerry Stokes and, 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 and others is part of a bigger picture where there's been increasing um, involvement of uh, consulting firms, of contracting firms in the overseas aid program. So one of the things we saw beginning with Malcolm Turnbull, where he called for a step change in Australia's relationship with the region, concerned particularly about rising Chinese influence, and then Morrison in 2018, speaking at Laverick Army Barracks in Townsville, <laughs> quite an appropriate uh, choice for a, a khaki step up. Mm. Um, you know, they announced this increasing focus on the Pacific Islands. So we've seen the the budget of overseas aid cut from Africa, Middle East, from uh, South Asia and Southeast Asia, um, really gutting the program in other parts of the world to increase aid to the Pacific. But a lot of that is boomerang aid, and it's come back to benefit corporate interests and these large consulting firms um, who've done incredibly well out of some of the programs. And you only have to look at things like the Australian National Audit Office has done investigations of the uh, offshore processing centres in Papua New Guinea and Nauru, now closed in, in on Manus Island, to see the massive amounts of money that went to corporations like Canstruct for their role in the, um, the maintenance of the offshore processing centres, a really scandalous waste of money. So while the government uh, today proudly uh, notes, and it's correct, that the age budget to the Pacific Islands has grown, it hides the fact that a lot of that money is going to Australian interests rather than uh, to really benefiting local grassroots initiatives. And more importantly, it masks the fact that over Ford estimates, our aid budget is shrinking. The aid budget is due to be down in a couple of years' time to 0.19% of gross national income. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a tiny proportion of aid. The global target is 0.7% of national income. We're down at 0.19 in the next couple of years. So we've seen under the coalition, really, although there's been a shift of resources to the Pacific, it hasn't always benefited grassroots communities. Um, and that's a significant problem. And that's widely acknowledged in the region at a time that there are major challenges, both the human security around development, around education and health, responding to the COVID pandemic, but also more importantly, environmental security and the real challenge of climate change. Yeah. You brought up aid there. I was interested to discover that the picture in terms of where the aid is going in the Pacific is not necessarily increasing across the board for individual nations. It's a bit variable in terms of the outcomes financially. And so I saw that The Guardian was reporting that Australia's official development assistance to the Solomon Islands, for example, declined 12.6% from $179 million in 2014-15, which was the Abbott era, to $156 million in the 2021-22 budget. 
And so we're seeing that particularly relevant example being brought up because of the situation that has really reared its head during this election campaign, which is the security deal between the Solomon Islands and China. And the Australian government, or at least Australian government officials, had apparently been warned last August by some in the Solomon Islands parliament. And apparently the Australian government essentially did nothing or clearly not enough. And then when the draft agreement came out, the coalition government at the time, now caretaker government, they were apparently caught off guard and, you know, didn't really take it seriously. It seems that this agreement was really going to come to fruition. And now we actually have seen the Prime Minister Sogavare sign that deal with China And we saw only a couple of weeks ago media start to panic and catastrophize a little bit over China and its proximity now to Australia if it has closer involvement with the Solomon Islands. The Labor Party has said that uh, essentially this is the greatest foreign policy failure. I wonder, what is your take on this situation. Do you think it was an overreaction or is this a foreign policy disaster or can it be both at the same time? Look, personally, and from many Pacific Islanders that I speak to, the greatest foreign policy failure, uh, and it's bipartisan in Australia, is the failure to address climate change, where you can have uh, major parties uh, running for this election still talking about uh, expanding the coal industry, new coal mines in New South Wales and uh, Queensland, Um, you know, the ALP uh, um, running dead in some of their seats in the Hunter Valley, for example, uh, not wanting to address the need for an urgent transition um, to to get out of stranded assets like coal and gas. Um, You know, that's, for me, the greatest foreign policy failure. Um, the, the, The bipartisan failure in Australian policymaking to address the adverse effects of climate change for ourselves as much as for our neighbours in the Pacific who are on the climate front line. And look, the the drop in in funding for for the Solomons came after 14 years of the regional assistance mission in Solomon Islands. Um, You know, between 2003 and 2017, Australia, together with other Forum Island nations, was involved in a major operation and and more than $2.8, nearly $3 billion was spent um, uh, over that 14-year period in Solomon Islands. So it's not quite right, I think, the way the media has presented this current crisis that people haven't been doing enough in the Solomons. What I'd argue, however, is that a lot of the money that was spent in the Solomon Islands under Ramsey, this regional assistance mission, was not benefiting ordinary grassroots people, but in fact flowing back like boomerang aid to Australia. And I think one of the things that the media has missed in the current debate about the security crisis is what was the effectiveness for good or bad, of the policing programs, the law and justice programs that were a major part of the Ramsey deployment through the Australian Federal Police, through the Australian Defence Force and so on. Um, you know, this, this, there's a lack of history in the current debate around the, the Solomon's crisis. So on both angles, I think the, the Australian media, by and large, has missed the significance of what's happening at the moment. Um, both about what happened with Ramsey, where we, you know, Australia did a lot under Ramsey and put a lot of money in. The question is, was it well spent? But secondly, I, I disagree with Penny Wong. I think the greatest foreign policy failure is Australia's intransigence and resistance 
to the rapid decarbonisation of our economy. And that's the thing that's coming out of the Pacific. Um, just a few days ago, a group called Pacific Elders Voice, which is a grouping of former presidents, prime ministers, um, government scholars and so on, said, and I quote, the growing military tension in the Pacific region created by both China and the United States and its allies, including Australia, does little to address the real threat to the region caused by climate change. These nations have done very little to address their own greenhouse gas emissions, despite statements of intent by the nations. So the Pacific has repeatedly, for years and years and years, said that the greatest security threat in the region is climate change. You know, in 2018, the forum leaders signed the Boy Declaration uh, in Nauru. This was a declaration that said, and I quote, the greatest single threat to the well-being, livelihoods and security of Pacific peoples is climate change. So it's not just a threat to human security, to the livelihoods and well-being, to the environment, but it's also to national security. And I think what we're seeing, you know, the debate that should be brewing in, in this election campaign is how much the failure to address climate change is challenging regional security in the broader sense of the term. Excellent points, Nick. And um, I wanted to draw in now some of the other parties' policies relating to aid, given that we've just been talking broadly about that. So Labor, as you point out very clearly and, and fairly, has really not a particularly strong policy on climate, given that they're not stopping the building of coal and gas plants, among many other things. They have said, though, in their Pacific plan that they've just announced recently that they will increase official development assistance to Pacific countries by $525 million over four years and the new funding is going to support bilateral and regional aid and development projects in Pacific countries and Timor-Leste. And then in terms of the Greens policy, which some listening may be interested in, they said that they actually wanted to increase aid to 0.7% of gross national income, which, as you said earlier, is actually the global target. So it seems like they have some very ambitious goals in the Pacific, but also more broadly in relation to uh, foreign policy. I wonder... Could you perhaps evaluate for us some of the key policies that Labor have put forward that we have actually been referencing, including the Indo-Pacific Broadcasting Strategy, their commitment to boost aid, their climate infrastructure financing partnerships? You know, Do you think that this plan to increase aid, to increase funding to the Pacific is enough? And is it the right kind of policy? Look, there's a, a significant change in rhetoric, and I think people in the Pacific are looking closely at, at what Australian countries are offering, uh, what Australian parties are offering in this election, because it's so important. And it was striking that when she announced um, Labor's plan for a stronger Pacific family, sorry, I hate that jargon of family, but anyway, Penny Wong did say, quote, nothing is more central to the security and economies of the Pacific than climate change. So that's a fundamental shift in, in rhetoric, even as, as she's talking about the Solomons crisis and so on. And as you mentioned, Labor has made pledges in this, um, this plan around a number of areas, um, um, around international broadcasting, um, particularly around labour mobility and also a new Pacific migration program 
talking about allowing a few thousand people uh, from the Pacific, which will be warmly welcomed in the in the region. There's a Pacific Climate Infrastructure Financing Partnership that talks about clean energy infrastructure projects in the Pacific, which is um, building on work that's already begun in many countries, making the transition from diesel fuel electricity generation to renewables. And uh, the ALP has also offered to co-host a COP conference of the parties, you know, these global uh, climate talks that are held every year, that um, they have an Australia-Pacific COP following on Fiji hosting uh, in COP23. So there's a number of things that I think will be warmly welcomed in the Pacific. My concern is that it's a bit like the the Rudd government when it came in after the lost decade of the Howard years. Um, Rudd picked, frankly, the low-hanging fruit um, and and took steps that were warmly welcomed across the Pacific um, around things like setting up the pilot scheme for the seasonal worker program, bringing uh, Pacific Islanders to Australia to work in the horticulture industry, uh, a major achievement under under the Rudd government. Um, the stolen generations apology was very warmly welcomed in uh, countries, particularly those that Australia had colonised in the past, like Papua New Guinea. There was a, a ratification of the Kyoto Protocols. Uh, so a number of steps that were taken early on in the, the Rudd period in 2007-8 were, were very much welcomed. However, after that, a lot of the momentum faltered. And I think that the Labor Party coming in this time will face a similar structural problem um, where there needs to be a, a, a rapid transition in Australia's economy around um, addressing the fossil fuel industry and the subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. And um, there's not a lot of sign from people like Richard Miles, the deputy leader, that they're willing to, to undertake that sort of work. So while I think that there will be some really good initiatives in the early days of a Labor government, presuming they win on the 21st of May, there's a real structural challenge about how rapidly Australia can make the transition. The other feature of the ALP policy is that there's a lot of focus on military and security issues, talk about military training, setting up a new Pacific Defence uh, Training Centre and so on. And that's still very much framed within the new Cold War attitudes that have brought us AUKUS, the uh, Australia-United Kingdom-United States Agreement, um, that is, uh, you know, once again uh, raising issues that are going to confront uh, um, our relationship with Pacific Island countries, particularly around nuclear issues. Um, Australia's proposal to purchase uh, either US or UK uh, nuclear submarines goes very much against the anti-nuclear sentiment that you find across the uh, Pacific Islands. And if uh, Labor continues with AUKUS policies that really integrate us further into US warfighting strategies, particularly nuclear warfighting strategies, there'll be a lot of resistance in the Pacific Islands to that militarisation, given that the Pacific has, has still got very strong anti-nuclear sentiment. Yeah, that actually reminds me that Prime Minister Sogavare said that they and the region, quote, should have been consulted to ensure that this AUKUS treaty is transparent since it will affect the Pacific family by allowing nuclear submarines 
in Pacific waters. And this was his speech, which was quite heated, essentially saying that Australia had been very hypocritical in its outcry around the Solomon Islands and its sovereign decision to enter into a security agreement with China. But you mentioned there, AUKUS, that is um, an area where it seems Labor is doubling down and is seeking to boost that agreement with a $1.2 billion defence research agency. So it seems that they will be proceeding with the AUKUS partnership given that they've announced a new policy, a substantially new um, new policy around it. But I also wanted to point out to those listening that I did go to the Liberal Party's website. You can do it yourself, liberal.org.au, and I looked through, uh, as best I could, their election policies, and I couldn't actually find anything relating to foreign policy, particularly foreign aid and the Pacific Island nations. So unfortunately, I can't really say what their policy is except what they delivered in the March budget. But there is obviously a very strong focus there on national security and defence on the Liberal Party's policy platform but absolutely nothing that I could find in the Pacific Island area. So I just wanted to note that glaring hole and uh, and thought that was also kind of quite telling of what a future coalition government might do in terms of the Pacific. Do you think that they are seeking or will seek to respond to the criticisms that people have made in terms of their approach to the relationship with the Pacific? Well, I think there's there's terrible problems for the coalition if they were to be re-elected, which seems unlikely on current polling, but who knows? We'll see. Um, One of the problems is that the coalition is quite divided on climate policy. So you have people in the National Party, um, even in the midst of the election campaign, um, knocking, you know, the question of net zero by 2050, whereas Pacific Islands are saying we need net zero by 2035. Mm. Um, There's a, a real, real push around this question, and that's a false discussion. You know, it's clear, and you can hear this from developing countries all over the world, that there needs to be a, an urgent and rapid transition towards renewable energy, um, a shift away from fossil fuels, and you don't see any coherence in the in the coalition around this area, um, despite their pledge of a you know a, a two billion dollar climate solutions fund for farmers and small businesses and and so on. Um, they're not really addressing this this question, and that's a, a fundamental problem. I think what's interesting about AUKUS, too, is that it's not just about nuclear submarines. It's about technology transfer. It's about cyber warfare. It's about uh, rare earths and and exploitation of uh, strategic minerals and metals. Um, It's a much broader agenda, and I think you'll find a a certain amount of bipartisan support for that agenda um, amongst conservative members of the Labor Party as well as the coalition. Um, So you're going to see... an ongoing engagement this. And one of the problems is that, you know, this creates tensions between Australia's um, global interests and its regional ones. And we saw this, for example, with the relationship with France. One of the features of the AUKUS uh, agreement was the rupturing of the strategic partnership between um, Australia and France that had built up since the Rudd days you know, under the Rudd government, uh, they, they signed in 2012 a joint statement of strategic partnership. Um, Julie Bishop uh, in 2017 did a, an enhanced statement of uh, strategic partnership. Um, 2018, when President Macron visited Australia, um, Malcolm Turnbull signed a joint vision statement. And over time, officials and ministers were putting teeth onto this relationship with France 
And there is a bipartisan commitment to this. Richard Miles, the deputy leader of the ALP the other day, just said, France is a Pacific country. Now, the problem is that the people in New Caledonia in the independence movement say France is a European country. It's not a Pacific country. It's a colonial power in the Pacific. And I think an incoming Australian uh, Labor Party government will face a strategic dilemma. Do they rebuild relationships with France and newly re-elected President Emmanuel Macron of their, you know, role working together in the Indo-Pacific against China? Or do they listen to the voices from our Melanesian neighbours, Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu, Solomons, Fiji, who are working with the Kanak independence movement um, on decolonisation to move New Caledonia to a new political status? And this issue is going to blow up um, after the French government's elected in mid-year um, with National Assembly elections. Um, and and uh, whoever wins the Australian election is going to face this dilemma. Do they side with France as a colonial power in the Pacific or do they sign with our Melanesian neighbours to support self-determination and the rights of the indigenous Kanak population? So this gap is going to continue. I think there's some great initiatives being outlined in the Greens and the Labor Party, even some of the Liberal Party policies. But the bottom line is that there are structural questions about you know, Australia's positioning against China in the region and seeking allies through Britain, United States, and to a certain extent France, um, lining up against China, are they going to sacrifice the interests of our neighbours in that broader picture? And I think mm. that challenge remains whether it's Labor or Liberal who wins the election. And Nick, just finally, the independents, particularly the teal independents who are running under the Climate 200 funding, obviously they're funded by a number of other community groups uh, that are local to them. They have certainly put climate change as a central policy for them and they said that should they potentially have the balance of power that they would be using that as a bargaining tool for whoever would form government. And the Greens, of course, has a similar position being very strong on climate change historically and currently. I wonder, do you see that as any potential hope on the issue of climate change, given that throughout this discussion you have been representing the Pacific very well in sharing again and again just what is their priority, which is climate change. Do you think at this election, if people had the option of looking at the policies of the independents and the Greens, that their policies would benefit the Pacific and that that may be one way of actually forcing a greater action on climate change? Look, I think it's really important that the climate is, is regarded as a central plank of, of, you know, the policy that people should be voting on. I think, however, it's important to recognise this shift is underway. And I'll just give you one quote to finish up. Last week, a man put out a statement and he said, Australia continues to ignore the very plain facts that climate change represents the single greatest threat to the livelihood, security and well-being of Pacific people. And this in turn has huge security implications for Australia. Pacific Island leaders have clearly and repeatedly identified climate change as the greatest threat to their people's future security. Now, the person who said that was Chris Barry, who was a Navy Admiral in the Royal Australian Navy, now retired. He's the former Chief of Defence for the Australian Defence Force. So here you have a senior military man, now retired, but willing to speak out together with other retired uh, military and defence officials to say that they recognise 
the strategic importance of climate change, even in their own framework, even in their national security framework, forgetting about the human impacts on the ground. And that sort of change is happening radically. And I think the Solomons-China deal has really brought this issue to the head in the middle of the elections. What are the major threats to security and what range of assistance, technical assistance, finance, research, people-to-people engagement should Australia be putting into those major security challenges? And so I think it's really crucial that Australia listens to the voices coming from a range of institutions within Australia and in our neighbourhood to shift the balance of resources away from nuclear submarines Mm. and to more engagement with the concrete security challenges that are facing our nearest neighbours. That's the way to build Australian security, not more submarines. And I think this is a, a really crucial turning point and this election will be very significant as we move forward to the 21st of May. Yeah. Well, it's very fortunate that as part three of our election policy series, we are covering climate change, despite the fact that barely anyone else is, and many politicians are reluctant to be talking about it at the moment. Nick, it is just so wonderful to have spoken with you about this topic, which, as we can tell, requires a great historical knowledge as well as political knowledge. So I really do appreciate your time today and thank you so much for talking all things foreign affairs, particularly in the context of this election and with a focus on the Pacific region. Thanks very much, Amy, and thanks for taking the time. It's a pleasure. I've just been speaking with Nick McClellan, who is Pacific Affairs Correspondent for Inside Story. You should absolutely read his pieces, which are up on their website, free to read. And he's also a correspondent for Islands Business Magazine in Fiji, which is also an excellent publication, which you can check out online. And we've just been talking about foreign policy as part of this federal election campaign with a focus on the Pacific region. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.